Well, let's uh, get back to Galatians. Let's take your copy of God's Word and please turn with me to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4 verses 1 through 7. And this morning we have the great privilege of considering one of the most precious truths of the gospel. And that is our adoption as sons. That through faith in Jesus Christ, God the Father counts us as sons in the Son, children in the Beloved, and gives us the right to all of the privileges of the sons of God. Sadly, though, I think it's true that the believer's adoption in God's family often suffers neglect. Uh, it It is a privilege that I think has often gone unappreciated and therefore it doesn't it doesn't shape and transform our Christian life and experience the way that God intends it to. Yet when we when we turn to Holy Scripture, when we turn to the Word of God, we see that the truth of adoption is is hardly a peripheral truth. It is foundational, it is fundamental to what it means to be a Christian. I think our fathers in the faith help us a great deal here. Many of our fathers in the faith have said that the grace of adoption is the most precious blessing that God gives to us in Jesus Christ. John Murray, in his little book, Redemption and Accomplished and Applied, said that adoption is the apex, it is the mountain peak of grace and privilege. Listen to this from Thomas Watson, this Puritan. He said, It is much for God to take a clod of dust and make it a star. It is more for him to take a piece of clay and sin and adopt it for his heir. J.I. Packer, I'm sure many of you have read this. From J.I. Packer, he says, You can sum up the whole of New Testament religion if you describe it as the knowledge of God as one's holy father. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. You hear what Packer is saying there? It's it's an alarming statement, I think. If our status as children of God is not what shapes and colors our whole outlook on the Christian life, Packer is saying we haven't even begun to understand what it means to be a Christian. So foundational is the the grace of adoption. And so the doctrine of adoption, it's not an incidental truth for living the Christian life. It's basic, it's fundamental, it's foundational, and therefore it ought to be a governing idea that, that shapes the whole of our Christian life and experience. So that's what we want to do today. We want to dwell on this great truth that through faith in Jesus... We are children of God, and if children, then heirs. Let's pray together before we read. Gracious God and Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the sweet and precious truth of the gospel that you sent your one and only Son to redeem us, that we might receive adoption as sons, and that you went on to send your Spirit to dwell in our hearts so that we would know for sure that we are indeed the children of God through faith. We ask today that you would would transpose our understanding of salvation in Christ to a higher key and 
transfigure our ideas of what you have done for us in Christ and by the Holy Spirit so that we might live as the children of God by faith. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Galatians chapter 4 verses 1 through 7. This is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Notice right away the Trinitarian nature of our adoption. That Our adoption is the work of the triune God. For Paul, God's triunity, the the fact that God is three in one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, co-equal in substance, power, and glory. That is not theological jargon for the Apostle Paul. Rather, it forms the very foundation of the edifice of his entire theological thought. In other words, the doctrine of the Trinity is not an incidental truth to Paul's thinking about God, about salvation, about the Christian life. To carry on the, the illustration, the doctrine of the Trinity, it's not, like a, it's not like a coat of paint that you slap on a wall, but is incidental to the integrity of the structure itself. Rather, it is the foundation upon which the whole building of our understanding of God, salvation, and the Christian life is based. And I think that is absolutely clear when we think together about the great truth of our adoption. Adoption is the work of the triune God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit work as one according to their will To change our story from being children of wrath to being the children of God. What I want us to notice here is that the Father initiates, the Son accomplishes, and the Spirit applies. The Spirit applies by confirming and convincing us that we are indeed children of God through faith. Now this wonderful truth of our adoption, it's it's so so rich and so deep, we can hardly begin to scratch the surface of this reality today. So I want to really just focus our attention upon one idea in this text. And here's what we want to do today. We want to notice that each, how each person of the Trinity is at work in our adoption. That's what I want us to do. Think about the work of each person of the Trinity as it relates to our adoption. And so the first thing we see in this passage, the first thing I want you to see is the initiative of the Father. The initiative of the Father in our adoption. Did you notice that there's a twofold sending in this text? The Father sent the Son. 
in order to redeem us so that we might receive adoption as sons. And then the Father sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. See what Paul is saying, the source of both the legal foundation of our adoption, the work of Jesus Christ, and the experienced reality of our adoption, the ministry of the Holy Spirit, both have as their source the initiative of the Heavenly Father. Christ was sent to accomplish our redemption through his redemptive work, and the Spirit is sent to apply and confirm our adoption as sons through faith. And so we need to see here that the gracious Father, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, is the initiating source behind both the accomplishment and the application of adoption. So we're God's adopted children by virtue of God's gracious purpose and design. And that corresponds to what the Apostle John says in the opening words of his gospel. You remember in John chapter 1, verses 12 through 13. Listen, listen closely to what John says there. He says, But to all who did receive him, that is, who received Christ, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. There's the doctrine of adoption. Christ gave those who believed in him the legal right to be named the children of God and receive all of the privileges of the sons of God. That's the first thing. We're adopted when we believe the gospel, John says. But notice, John doesn't leave us in that text to think that we are the initiating source of our adoption, that we got things going when we believe the gospel. Instead, he goes on in verse 13 to say, who are those who are named the children of God? He says, those who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. In other words, those who are adopted are those who believe, and those who believe are those who believe not by the will of any creature, but because of the sovereign and gracious purposes of God, God the Father. And so God the Father initiated your adoption, but that he, he adopted you freely by his grace when you believed the gospel. And my friends, that ought to, that ought to profoundly move us. It did for the Apostle John in his first letter in 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. You remember what he said? See, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. And so we are, John says. And I really think, I really think that the translation of that first word, see, doesn't help us grasp what John is really saying to us. Literally, it says, behold, look at the kind of love the Father has given to us. It's a command. It's an imperative. It's a command full of joy, and it is an urgent summons to study and dwell upon and evaluate the love of the Father for his children. I think it's so wonderful to the Apostle John that it is an urgent matter. He wants you to look upon this great love. It is, it is a, an apostolic inspired summons 
to behold something of infinite value and worth. I want you to look upon this great love, a love that, that stands in a category of its own, the love that God has for his children. And so he wants to focus our attention. He's saying, look at this. You know, examine the diamond and turn it around and see it in all of its contours and beauty and its various dimensions. And so what John is doing in that verse is he's, 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 uh, he's giving us a challenge of sorts. He gives us work to do. He says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us. He is calling you and me to evaluate the love of God. And he's inviting you to try to take it in. Go ahead and whip out your measuring tape and see if you can take a measurement of God's love. See if you can measure its depth and reach its height and find its limits. And it will defy your attempts to do so in every way. So great is this love. Notice as he gives us this challenge, he actually gives us a resource for measuring the Father's love. Going back to J.I. Packer, tell somebody I looked at this week, he says the New Testament gives us two yardsticks for measuring the love of God the Father. I wonder if you could think of those two yardsticks that are given to us in the New Testament. The first one, Packer says, is the cross of Christ. He quotes 1 John 4, verse 10, And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his Son to be a propitiation for our sins. So the first yardstick given to us in the New Testament for measuring the love of God is the cross of Jesus Christ, the cross of his only begotten Son. But there is another yardstick, and that other yardstick is the gift of sonship, that God would take guilty undeserving, actually hell-deserving rebel sinners and make them heirs. Name them as his children. It is a love that defies human comprehension. And so if we, as we are unpacking the doctrine of adoption together, if, if as we're doing that, we're thinking, okay, Jared, get, get to the application. Get to the, get to the destination. Tell me what the the practical payoff is from the doctrine of adoption. And if that's what we're doing, and at the same time we fail to grasp something of the sheer wonder of this grace, then I think we have actually missed the first and primary use of the doctrine of adoption. What is the doctrine of adoption for? What should the doctrine of adoption do to us, dear friends? It should fill us with wonder that such a God has loved us so much that he would make us an heir. Sometimes I think when it comes to Christian doctrine, you might, you might be like me when I have to go on a long drive. What do I, I get in the car and I have my des, the destination and view and I'm going straight there. <laughs> I don't want to make any stops along the way. I don't want to slow down along the way and enjoy the scenery. I want to get to my destination. And sometimes I think when it comes to the study of Christian doctrine, we really are guilty of theological speeding tickets. And dear friends, as we think about the doctrine of adoption, here's the first thing I want to encourage you to do is to slow down and do what John is telling you to do. Look at this love. 
See what kind of love the Father has given to us that he would make you his beloved child. And secondly, notice not just the Father's initiative, but the accomplishment of the Son. What Paul says here is nothing short of astounding. Christ came to redeem us. Now we are used to hearing that that statement as Christians, that Christ came to redeem us. But look closely at what Paul is saying. Christ came to redeem us so that we might be the children of God. The Son of God became a man so that men could become the sons of God. Now you understand we're not leaving out here uh, uh, women. That is not what is meant by the language of sonship in the New Testament. Instead, the focus of the New Testament is that in the Son you are sons, and if sons, heirs. Male and female, Jew and Gentile. In Christ Jesus we are counted as sons. And so I think about it this way. Christ's coming, we're told here, had an atoning purpose but it also had an adoptive purpose. Look closely at verses 4 and 5. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. My friends, the, the Father initiates your adoption. And... That means he appoints the means of your adoption. And the means of your adoption is the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. He sent forth his son. Just think about that. God sent his one and only son so that you might be called his son. You remember the words of God to Abraham in the Old Testament? Abraham, take your son, your only son, the son whom you love, and offer him on as a sacrifice on the, the mountain that I uh, will show you. And you remember that that language is picked up again in the New Testament, and it's used to refer to Christ. This is my son, my beloved son, the son whom I love. At his baptism and at his transfiguration, The father did with his son what Abraham did not have to do with his. Abraham was prevented from offering up his son as a sacrifice, but God our father provided his. Remember in Genesis that a ram was caught in a thicket that would be a substitute so that Isaac might live. A substitute was provided by God so that the son could go free But for our adoption, we need to see that the Son of God is the substitute of God's providing. The most precious thing of the Father's heart. The apple of his eye, the Son of his love, his only begotten Son. And the Gospel says he did not spare him, but he gave him up for us all. But before he could set us free so that we might receive adoption, Paul says Christ was born of woman. Think about that. Christ who is co-eternal with the Father and with the Holy Spirit. He existed before the incarnation. That's implied, isn't it? He was sent. He was sent by the Father. 
And he came into the world born of woman. In other words, he, he shares our nature. God, the eternal son, enfleshed. So we think about adoption. This is the length to which God would go to make you his child. He would send his only son to enter into our nature to secure our adoption as sons who, who were by nature alienated from God. God, the eternal son, takes on our humanity. It should fill us with wonder. But this language, I think, of, of uh, born of woman, I think it has another dimension to it because I think it also highlights something that we could easily forget or miss. He's born of woman. That's a strange way of putting it. What's Paul alluding to? I think he's alluding to the promise of Genesis 3.15 that one would be born of the woman, the seed of the woman would be born who would crush the serpent's head. And as that promise of Genesis 3.15 expands in the Old Testament, we also find that he is the promised offspring of Abraham, the one to whom all of the covenant promises would find their meaning and fulfillment. And even more than that, as we keep going here, Paul says... He's born of woman. He was born under the law. The marvel of all of this intensifies. The creator is born a creature. And then Paul says the divine lawgiver submits himself to the law. Obeying its commands and suffering its curse. And all of it was to redeem us so that we might receive adoption as sons. Paul is telling us here, as he's been alluding to already in Galatians, that Christ kept the whole law. He obeyed it perfectly. He kept all of the commandments of God. And then, then he died under the law. He suffered the curse of the law in himself. The curse that we deserved as lawbreakers. And I think here in Galatians, Paul wants us to understand as he's writing to the Galatian churches, that there is no other way. There was no other way for us to be redeemed and adopted as sons than this way. There was no way to get around the law of God. There was no way to, to manipulate the system, to perform the necessary work to secure our adoption and, and freedom from bondage to sin. One had to come who would obey the law and then pay the price in our place. And that one is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's purchased our freedom. He's redeemed his people, setting them free so that we could have a place among the people of God, be called the children of God, and forever enjoy the privileges that come with being named as a son or daughter of God. Of God most high. You know when you think about. Uh, earthly adoption. However you want to put it. You know adoption's expensive. I mean the fees can be astronomical. Well, I want you to remember today. That if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Dear friend. You, you have been adopted. And I want you to think about. The cost of that adoption. Hey the Silver and gold are nothing to the one who owns the cattle on a thousand hills. But instead, God the Father has purchased us with something of infinite value and worth, the precious blood of his very own Son in flesh. What 
what a marvel, how precious a thing our status is as the children of God, that God would give his firstborn son, the heir of all things, the only begotten son of God, in order that we might be named his children. So as we look at these verses, there's the initiative of the father, the accomplishment of the son, and then thirdly, there's the ministry of the spirit. Look again at at verses uh, six and seven. Because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. I I think you, I hope you noticed when we read the paragraph of the Westminster Confession of Faith on Adoption, that there are many aspects to the privileges of the sons of God. But there is one privilege that I think Paul is highlighting for us here. And that is that we have a right to assurance that we are indeed the children of God. Because the Father initiated our adoption, because the Son accomplished our adoption, and because the Spirit has been sent to confirm and to convince us that through faith in Christ, We are indeed sons of God through faith. Uh, I came across a a story this week uh, about a young girl who had been fostered by uh, her foster parents for for many years. And she she came to consider uh, this husband and wife as her own own parents. And, And they loved her. And they treated her as their very own daughter. And both parties, the the young girl and the parents, wanted to to formalize that relationship. They wanted to adopt her into their family. But the problem was that the country in which they lived, the law did not allow foster parents to adopt children that they fostered. And so for years, this young girl grew up in this home, loved by these parents, but with the constant fear and insecurity that somehow this one day was just going to be ripped out from under her and that one day she was going to lose it all. That one day she'd be taken from them. Now, the story has a, thankfully has a happy ending. In the end, a provision was found so that she could live permanently with the foster parents, even though the law did not allow her to ever be uh, adopted. But I tell you that story because I, I suspect that many of us as Christians find ourselves in the same position as that young girl, at least psychologically. You know, we might, we might know up here the, the truth of adoption. We might even be able to quote to you the shorter catechism answer to what is adoption. We may know that salvation is a gift of God's sovereign grace. And while we know the truths in our heads, they haven't taken root yet in our hearts. Maybe, maybe some of us, just trying to think through why that might be the case, maybe some of us have only ever known relationships with strings attached. There's no security in that kind of relationship, is there? Anytime you, you mess up, anytime you disappoint, anytime you upset, or anytime you go wrong... That person you're in a relationship with immediately turns against you and seeks to harm you and and seeks to make you feel insecure and calls into question whether that relationship can even continue. 
Well, if that's our experience, my friends, of a relationship with someone close to us, I think some of us will fail to take in the truth that because of the initiative of the Father, because of the accomplishment of the Son, and because of the ministry of the Holy Spirit, we can know that we are secure as the children of God and that the love of the Father is fixed upon us and it will never change. I want you to listen to this from from John Owen. This comes from uh, the book Communion with God. If you've never read a book by a Puritan and you want to, I think you should start with Communion with God. But listen to what John Owen says. The greatest sorrow and burden... You can lay on the Father is to not believe that he loves you. You hear that? He's saying there's nothing more grievous to the heart of God the Father. And he goes on to say there's nothing that serves the purposes of Satan more than to think as a child of God that the Father's heart is not full of love and affection for you. Owen goes on to talk about how the Father's greatest desire. Did you hear that? The Father's greatest desire for his children in this life is for them to know and rest in his fatherly love. John Owen says the way we commune with God the Father is we commune with him in love. He wants you to know for certain That his love for you is sure. You remember last Sunday. The steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. And for this reason. God the Father sent forth the spirit of the Son. To dwell in your hearts crying out Abba Father. So God the Father from eternity. Has purpose to have you believer in Jesus Christ as his child. And Such that he set his love upon you when there was absolutely nothing lovely in you. And then in the fullness of time, the gospel tells us he sent his son to live for you and to die for you, to set you free, to make you his. And then he went beyond that, not just redeeming us from sin and forgiving us, but taking it a step even further in grace to adopt us as his children. It's a marvel. And then notice as we think here about the Holy Spirit to confirm that, to convince us of that reality, he sent the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of his Son, the Spirit of adoption, the Spirit of sonship to live in our hearts forever. And there he dwells constantly witnessing to you, assuring you, reminding you of the, that God The father of our Lord Jesus Christ is your father. And that to you he is eternally Abba, father. Now whenever I I say this to no offense to any of you. But whenever I try to get together with one of you. It's it's usually by appointment. Right? We coordinate and we try to set up a time to get together. So that we can meet. And again this is no offense to any of you. Because I love each and every one of you. But you know Karis and Emma They don't need to set up an appointment. (laughs) All I need to hear is daddy, or for Emma now, it's dada. And they have my immediate focus and attention. 
They have, they have full and free access. When they call upon my name, I am there to listen and I am ready and willing to do whatever I can for them. Now, I, I am a sinner and I fail at what I've just said each and every day. But my friends, God is sinless and therefore he is a perfect father. You understand what it means to be a child of the king? That you have free access into the throne room of heaven. And God the Father, he's never too busy for you. He's never too distracted with his own stuff to listen to you, to be concerned about you. He never grows tired of hearing your voice. That is the relationship that you have right now as a child of God. And children we are. Because the Son dwells in your heart. I think we just need to take this little phrase and do what John told us to do. Look at this. Look at this love. You're a child of the king. You're a child of the king. That's what adoption means. The one who reigns in heaven above, rules over all creation. He is your tender, loving, compassionate father. Now, two quick words of, of application here. I'll, just, I'll give you one word to summarize both of them. I want you to think about fellowship, and then I want you to think about freedom. First of all, fellowship. I hope you understand that adoption is so much more than an impersonal legal declaration of God that you are his child. It is absolutely that. It is a legal declaration that you are God's child through faith in Jesus Christ. But you need to understand what adoption means relationally because that's the emphasis of Scripture. Adoption means that God brings us into the closest possible relationship that we could ever have with the living God. Adoption emphasizes the quality of the new relationship that we now have with him. And everything, everything about the Christian life, from our worship to our witness to our prayers to our daily life of obedience, is to be colored and shaped by this reality that we are beloved children of, of God. And I think sometimes as, as Presbyterians, we're so careful to be you know, nuanced in our theology, and, and we should be. And we're so careful to reflect a high doctrine of God's transcendence and his holiness, and we absolutely must. But understand that the, the basic cry of the Christian is Abba, Father, marked not by sophistication, but by simple trust. And so fellowship, and then the second word I want you to think about is, is freedom. Freedom. Because that's, that's Paul's concern here in the opening four verses of this chapter. Maybe you thought I forgot about them. But let's quickly run through them here. Paul is saying that being a son means you're no longer a slave. More than that, he says, uh, you know, in, terms of the, in terms of the history of redemption, in terms of how God has dealt with his people through the history of how he is dealing with them uh, by his grace, you are no longer a son under a guardian, Paul is saying to the Galatians. We're no longer under the, the tutelage of the Old Testament law code. 
That's what Paul wants these Christians in the Galatian churches to understand. And maybe you remember, as a few weeks ago, we, we talked about how Paul used that imagery of the law as a, as a guardian or a kind of pedagogue that, that trained and disciplined the people of God. That's why God gave them the law. In the Old Testament, believers were like sons who were entrusted to a guardian, that guardian being the law, and that, long, that law disciplined them and trained them in the ways of, of God. But I think we also ought to understand it was really like elementary school for the people of God during that period. Right? The people had specific laws to, to govern every part of their lives from what you, could, uh, what you would wear to what you would eat to who you would associate with. And you know, when you're, when you're an, an elementary age kid, that's, that's what you need, isn't it? We need someone to tell us when to get up and what to wear and what to eat and where to be and, where to, and when to be there and what to say, who to associate with, and so on. And, but you understand the, the, those, those laws, those rules, that household code is, was, is never intended by parents for you to perpetually remain an adolescent. But instead, that household code is there to train you up so that you might mature and, and reach adulthood. The law was like that, Paul says. God was training his people with the law to get them ready for the gospel. But you remember, remember the issue in Galatia, the Judaizers, the false teachers. If I can, if I can put it this way, they were basically saying that the Old Testament law is like graduate school after you believe the gospel. Right? Faith in Jesus, a life of faith, that's elementary school stuff. And then you go on to the law. And Paul's responded to say, dear Galatians, going, going back to the law, living like the people of Israel did under the Old Testament law, that would be like getting your PhD and then going back to kindergarten. And the reason, I think, though, that these Judaizers were teaching this and the reason that many of them were being captivated by this teaching is that all of them were gripped by a kind of legalism. Um, a while ago now, uh, several of us read through a book uh, by Sinclair Ferguson called The Whole Christ. Dave and I were just talking about that book together this morning. Uh, Bob McKelvey uh, led us through the book, and if I remember correctly, he distinguishes between at least two types of legalism. I think one he calls doctrinal legalism. Doctrinal legalism is the idea that by our own works, by our own efforts, we can secure and maintain our right standing with God. And I think all of us would reject that form of legalism. But Sinclair Ferguson, so helpfully in that book, goes on to point out that there, there are different kinds of legalism. And there is one, actually, that's far more subtle and far more dangerous. Maybe one of you can remind me of what he calls it, because I don't remember right now. But it was basically the idea of a spirit of legalism. The spirit of legalism is the idea that while you affirm gospel doctrine, while you believe that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, at the end of the day in your heart, you really believe that you've got to earn your keep in the household of God. That at the end of the day, it really is up to you, while you got started by faith, to complete it by works. And I think if we could just get behind that kind of legalism, we have to recognize, or we would recognize, that behind it is a faulty view of God. 
Do you, do you remember the story of the prodigal son? The story of the prodigal son. I want you to think about the elder brother, older brother, when, when uh, the father you know, slayed the, the fatted calf and put a ring on the, the, the younger son. What did the, what did the older son say to his father? All these years I have slaved for you. There it is. There's the problem. You see how the older brother viewed his father? He viewed his father like a harsh taskmaster from whom he had to you know, twist his arm by slavery and servitude to get what he wanted. It's a false view of God. And I wonder if you view the Christian life like that. I wonder if you view obedience instead of colored by the reality of our sonship, if instead you view yourself as an unwanted slave who's just trying to earn your keep. I think an example of this could, a practical example of this can be seen in the, in the life of John Wesley. You know, before, uh, some of you will know the story, before John Wesley came uh, to Christ, frankly, externally, he was a much better Christian than all of us here in this room. He helped start the, the Holiness Club, a group of students who kept strict rules and were you know, methodical about how they conducted their lives. They, they went to church, they studied their Bibles, they prayed, they fasted, they evangelized, they visited the, those in prison and cared for the poor and so on. But all the while, Wesley did those things with a spirit of slavery. As you look back upon his life, he would later in life write and say, I had even then the faith of a servant, though not that of a son. And I want you to understand, dear friends, that there is a world of difference between those two things. God wants you to know, believer in Christ, that you are a son, and if a son, then already an heir of everything. Everything that God has stored up for his people in Jesus Christ is yours by grace through faith. And he wants you to know, this is what adoption is meant to confirm to you, he wants you to know that he loves you, that he loves his children with an everlasting love. Adoption is meant to convince the children of God of that reality. In love, this passage tells us, the father initiated your adoption by sending his son to redeem you so that you might receive adoption as son. And then he sent the spirit to dwell within your heart, crying, Abba, Father, so that his cry is your cry, so that you call out to God as your loving heavenly father. You see what that means? It means despite, despite all your sin, despite your shortcomings, despite your stumblings and bumblings in the Christian life, God's love for you is fixed, dear friends. And he wants you to live in light of that reality. And so let me just close with this final challenge. Here it is from the doctrine of adoption. Live and worship and pray as one who is loved because you're a child of the king. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you are to us Abba, Father, and we thank you that in love you sent forth your Son to redeem us so that we might be your children, and we thank you that you sent the Spirit of your Son into our hearts, crying out, Abba, Father, help us to live as children who trust 
in our Father's love. And, and Lord, we pray that like our elder brother, Jesus Christ, who was infinitely loved by his Father, that like him it would be our delight to do our Father's will. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.